So, we're going to be in Matthew, chapter 5, uh, verse 7 to 20 this morning. Um, I'm going to pray for our time and then uh, jump in. So, if you would join me. <clears throat> Lord, we're so thankful for the opportunity to gather this morning and so thankful uh, just for the, the chance to reflect on your word, to be challenged by by Jesus and uh, just encouraged by what he has done for us and uh, what he has become for us and, and what it means for us today and, and forever. And Lord, we pray that you would encourage our hearts from, uh, from your word this morning, uh, build us up and strengthen us with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so we're beginning an Advent series that is based on the book of Deuteronomy as it's applied by the life of Jesus. So, this should be fun. (laughs) Uh, So we're kind of out of Deuteronomy. Uh, For those that are visiting, we've been in Deuteronomy for eternity. Um, And uh, uh, we just finished up uh, Deuteronomy, and and now we're going to be looking at some things, just like, uh, as we wrapped up Deuteronomy, uh, just something I was seeing as Jesus is connected to the law, I just couldn't like leave this moment behind uh, as we kind of transition toward thinking about Jesus coming and, and the importance of his incarnation and, and what he actually did in coming to this earth the way that he did. Um, and, and the truth is that he became what we could not become, right? And we, we've seen through the law, through the study of the law, not only the importance of it, um, but the fact that we cannot fulfill it, like we cannot do all that is required of us in righteousness by our own works. And Jesus has completed that. And so over this time, as we lead up to Christmas, we'll be reflecting on the ways in which Jesus actually embodies the law in action. He, he actually perfectly obeys Deuteronomy in everything that he does and displays the values that God communicates to us about himself in everything he does. So, so I'm excited about kind of making these connections over the next seven weeks or whatever it, whatever it is. Um, but yeah, consider this our Advent series as we consider Jesus' interaction with the law. Um, I've titled this sermon, Jesus is, Jesus is the Law. <laughs> I, I almost pulled in a Judge Dredd clip, but I, but I didn't pull in the judge already put. Anyway, uh, Connor was hoping that I would, but uh, but I didn't. I, I he's got it on cue. Actually, uh, I am the law. Yeah, that's Jesus, right? Um, so so we'll be looking at this. Just, so just some review. How how am I getting here logically? And I think you'll remember some of this. But first of all, we know Jesus as the Word made flesh. If you've studied in John at all, you know this first chapter is talking about Jesus becoming flesh. The Word made flesh. And we also see Jesus proclaiming of himself that he is the way, the truth, and the life. What does it mean for him to be the truth, right? He is the perfect embodiment of God's revelation. He is the truth. He is the word put to flesh. And as we kind of studied Israel leaving Egypt in the culmination of covenant renewal as they are about to go in the land, you might remember these things, right? The people of Israel leave Egypt. God saves them by his mighty power. Once they leave Egypt, God gives them the Ten Commandments. They immediately disobey, right? 
they, after they disobey and God rebukes them and they receive another set of Ten Commandments, they march toward the land that God is giving them in battle formation. They get to the land. The land is there. God has said, okay, you see how I defeated you, defeated, brought you out of Egypt powerfully and defeated these kings. Now the land is yours. Ready? Go take it. And they say, eh, those guys are too big. Reject it. And for 40 years, they wander in the desert. Now before entering the land again, a new generation has risen up. And the Lord leads Moses in a covenant renewal process in which he's recorded on a scroll not only the the Ten Commandments again, but the specific way in which those Ten Commandments are to be um, taught and worked out as they go and possess the land that is before them. He tells them the importance of where the temple is. He tells them the importance of the festivals. He tells them how to apply specifically the Ten Commandments to various situations they will encounter in the land. He presents them with a scroll. It's the covenant renewal document. It's chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 5 through 30, most likely. And so this document is then put inside the Holy of Holies. And I, I, I think I pointed out when we went over it, but I just had never seen this before, that the scroll is like just put beside the covenant, beside the Ark of the Covenant. We always hear about what's in the Ark of the Covenant, Right? We hear about the manna that's in the Ark of the Covenant. We hear about the Ten Commandments. We hear about Aaron's staff that budded. These great, you know, uh, uh, markers of God's revelation and of God's character to the people of Israel. And those are held within the Ark of the Covenant. Literally a box that's gold. You know, it's like a gold safe of God's character and his revelation. But also, when they come to covenant renewal, this little document is set inside the temple next to the Ark of the Covenant. I haven't seen this ever. Like, this is the first time I've ever seen this. But as I was reflecting on it, the truth is that Jesus is the perfect embodiment of this law, right? If you reflect on Christ's life, how does he interact with the foreigner? How does he interact with his parents? How does he interact with the righteous? How does he interact with these people? Exactly according to how the law would have him interact with them. He is the law. He's the perfect fulfillment of the law. He takes the law and obeys it perfectly, as we cannot. And so this little scroll is spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 31. You guys have heard this before, but for for your benefit, I'll read it briefly again. When Moses had finished writing the words of the law in a book to the very end, he commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant for the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are, and behold, even today while I'm alive with you, you've been rebellious against the Lord, how much more after my death? This scroll is is a testimony that the people of Israel are broken. They cannot fulfill this thing. It is a testimony, a witness against them that they cannot fulfill it. If it is a witness against Israel and how they cannot fulfill the law, it is a witness to Jesus and how he does fulfill the law, right? It is a witness for Christ. It is a witness against us as people, but it is a witness for who Christ is. And so over the coming weeks, we're going to see um, what it means that Jesus fulfills the law. So we're in Matthew chapter 5. 
verses 17 to 20. And on uh, Thursday at Community Group, uh, we studied this and walked through this passage, and we're going to walk through it uh, this morning as well. Um, And this is going to be kind of the jumping off point as we look at Jesus and his interaction with the law. But it says this, Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So a couple things. Jesus did not abolish the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. What do we do with that? So often we look at the New Testament, we look at the life of Jesus and see, oh, we've got a new covenant, a covenant of grace, and now we don't have to worry about all that law stuff because Jesus has done away with that and now we just follow Jesus by grace and don't have to worry about what the law says. We're just worried about Jesus. And here Jesus is saying, no, I'm not removing what the law said. The law speaks of the holy character of God and that has not changed, nor will it change. I have simply come to fulfill what it has said. So it says first, I have not abolished the law. In verse 18, he kind of expands on this and says, until heaven and earth pass away, this law will not go away. It will not pass until heaven and earth pass away. What does it tell us? Our entire existence, the heavens, as in like what you see, the stars and sky, not like the eternal heaven, but like the sky and the universe, the creation of God and the earth that we walk on, all the created order follows the law. It it is subject to this law. And until these things are gone and a new heaven and a new earth come, this law is in place and continues to testify and witness against us, that we are broken and that we keep breaking this thing. Jesus has not come to abolish that. It will not go away until heaven and earth pass away. So first of all, the law is not going away and what it revealed is not going away. It is true even today. How much of it is not going away, you might ask? Like, are there parts of it that I shouldn't be worried about? Not the smallest letter of it will pass away. Not even the smallest stroke of a letter will pass away. It says, not an iota or not a dot. The iota iota is said to be the smallest letter in the Hebrew language, uh, referred to the smallest letter, and the dot is referred to as the smallest stroke on a letter. So not, a, not even the smallest stroke of a letter is going to pass away from the law. None of it. Like zero of it is going away. All of it is the revealed will of God and truth about his character, our interaction with him, who he is. Um, you know, obviously we've got to study all that in context and understand its application in context. Uh, but none of it's going away. So easily we want to say, ah, yeah, Old Covenant, Old Testament, we're not worried about that. We're living in the New Testament. No, you're living in the whole of it. Uh, We need to appreciate how holy and righteous God is to really appreciate what he has done for us in Jesus. So God has not come to abolish the law. He's come to fulfill the law. Christ has come to fulfill the law. So what does it mean 
that he comes to fulfill the law. Verses 19 and 20 say this. 19 says this. If anyone relaxes any part of the law, then he should be considered, and teaches others to do the same, he should be considered the least in heaven. But the person who does the law and teaches others to do the same should be considered great in heaven. Not only is Jesus not getting rid of the law, he's saying, actually, we need to follow it. We need to understand it and apply it to our lives. He challenges them in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not even enter the kingdom of heaven. What does it look like to fulfill the law? Is my question. What it looks like is to obey it perfectly. Jesus called to them as, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. Your standard of righteousness has to be higher than that of the Pharisees, right? So what is it to fulfill, fulfill the law, but to do it perfectly? This is what it is to fulfill the law. And so again, what we see in Jesus, and we'll see over the coming weeks, is that Jesus fulfills the law not, it, not just in the terms of what we normally, like we often think about Jesus um, you know, being referred to from the law and like prophesied about and that he fulfills it by coming and just in his general coming, he is fulfilling the law somehow. No, like yes, that, you know, yes, he fulfills many prophecies about who he is and when he's going to come and all this stuff. Um, but he also fulfills the law by obeying the law. By, by doing it, by, by uh, pressing its call on our lives into the people that he interacts with. One of the big glaring ones, and we'll, we'll talk about it some as we, as we get to it, but um, one of the things we saw as we looked through the law is this um, love of the sojourner and the foreigner, Right? Usually when you think about the old covenant people, you think, oh, Israel, they're totally separate. But actually, God called them constantly to give grace and blessing to those who were wandering among them who were sojourners. Even in the law's context, the law's application to the sojourner was just as gracious as it was to a brother or sister in Israel. And so when Jesus interacts with those who are not of the children of Israel, we're going to see that he has that same spirit about him as he interacts with those who are not the children of Israel. Jesus fulfills the law by representing its character perfectly, by following it to the T. So Jesus fulfills the law. We're going to look at uh, one example of this. You know, the truth is that Deuteronomy is one of the most cross-referenced books of the New Testament. Like so much of what Paul writes, of what Jesus writes, uh, what Jesus says throughout the Gospels is really based on the revealed character of God in Deuteronomy. And so actually one of the first interactions, you guys will be very familiar with this passage as we walk through it this morning, is when Jesus is tempted by the devil, right? As soon as he, he's baptized, the Holy Spirit is on him, leads him out to the desert for temptation, okay? 
For 40 days and 40 nights he is there fasting and praying. And during that time, the devil comes to tempt him. And in every case, his response to Satan is not just like new self-help information. It's a recitation of Deuteronomy. So Luke chapter 4, verses, uh, verses 2 to 13, we see how Jesus represents the law as he handles temptation. We, we each handle this, right? We each are walking in a world where temptation comes our way. So how, like Jesus, are we to apply the law to our lives? How does the incarnate Christ come to this earth and deal with the law as it relates to temptation. Luke chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. For 40 days, being tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during these days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Jesus was hungry. Acknowledge that, right? Jesus actually did have a need that he was feeling inside of his stomach. Jesus was wanting food. He was hungry. Okay. The devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, just command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live, on, live by bread alone. The expanded version of that from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses, verse 3 says this, And he humbled you, and let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Would it have been okay for Jesus to get himself some food? Was anything in the law prohibiting Jesus from eating? No, he can eat. He eats many times, right? Many times throughout his life, he eats. This is a normal thing for him to become hungry and then eat. Eat at normal times, at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Whatever, you know, whatever the meal rotation is actually there, I'm not sure. Um, it was okay for him to do that. But why was it not okay here? Why was it not okay in this situation? Why was it not okay for him to comfort himself even though he had the power to comfort himself? Right? Jesus had perfect power to be able to comfort himself to fulfill his desire of hunger with food in this moment. In fact, truthfully, as Satan said to him, he could have turned the stones into bread, no problem. That's totally true. Could have done that. If he would have done that, he would have been comforting himself under his own will, not under the will of God. He would have been seeking to bring comfort to himself, to bring himself comfort. And God had told him to go out into temptation 40 days and fast. And so for him, it would have been sinful to not obey that, to rather forsake what he was going through, forsake uh, this time in the wilderness and comfort himself when he was hungry. For him, it, it was sinful. Not because it's sinful to eat, not because it's sinful to fulfill yourself when you are hungry, but because God had told him what he needed to do. He was led by Holy Spirit to do this, 
and to become hungry and to know this want and understand this want for food and to reject it. And so for him at that moment, it would have been sin. If you fasted at any time, you know how hard this is. You say, okay, I'm going to fast for a few days or a day or whatever it is. And like the second, the first meal in, you know, no big deal. Like you skipped breakfast. Good job. You know, but by the time lunch comes around, you're like, mmm, like, you know, just some sunflower seeds would be nice. Like just like anything would be great right now. And what could I have? Does creamer in coffee count or no? And like all these things come rushing in very quickly on you. And for you in that moment, is it wrong for you to eat? No, it's not wrong for you to eat, but it is if God has told you what you need to do. James 4, 17 says, for that, the person who knows what to do from the Lord and does not do it, it is sin. If God has told you something to do, then you have to do it. It doesn't matter. Like, if, it, you know, it needs to line up with what the Lord has revealed. Like, you know, it, it shouldn't be, it, it's not going to be contrary to what God has revealed in, his, uh, in, in the Bible. But if he's told you, hey, you need to fast for three days and, and you stop day and a half in, then you've, you've broken what he called you to do. Jesus goes to Deuteronomy to find this truth. It is not by bread that we live, but by the word of God that we live. And as God speaks to you, that is what you are to do. You should not comfort yourself with your own means, but rather comfort yourself in what God has told you to go and do. So Jesus does this. Second, Luke 4, 5 to 8. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you all give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. That's a scary thought. Think about power and success and where it comes from and all this kind of things. And you got to be aware that like, it's not just good, you know, that, that success comes from. Okay. In the world's eyes. All right. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus did not answer by saying, I am God and I have all authority and glory and honor and power. He didn't say that. Instead, he went back to the law Again, and says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. It says, God has revealed about himself that he is the only one to be worshipped. And so I will not worship you, not based on, on who I am as the incarnate son of God, eternally existing from the beginning to the end, but rather, based on the law, I will tell you, Satan, that we are to worship no one other than God. We do not seek an opportunity to exalt ourselves. We will definitely be faced with, in this life, opportunities to give ourselves exaltation, to take that opportunity to say, yeah, I did a really good job. I did great there. We'll have all kinds of opportunities to do that over and over and over Again, what happens when we receive praise? 
What happens when we receive this success? Are we worshiping it and patting ourselves on the back for what we have accomplished? Or are we worshiping God who has given us all these things? knowing that it is not from the prince of the earth that we receive our blessing, but rather from our God in heaven, our Father who has a distinct purpose and plan for us that we receive this praise or this blessing or this honor or what have you. It is not so we would have glory, so we would have authority, so we would have things delivered to us, but rather that we would recognize God has blessed us with this and it is Him I worship. I have what I have because of what God has given me, not because of what I have earned. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Deuteronomy 6.13, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. Do not exalt yourself, exalt God, and he will lift you up. Humble yourself before him, and he will will lift you up. Finally, <clears throat> Luke 4, 9 to 13. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan gets tricky here and actually uses scripture uh, against him. And starts quoting scripture to Jesus. These things are also true. The angels will guard him. He will not strike his foot against a stone. But Jesus answers again from Deuteronomy. It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Deuteronomy six sixteen: you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. We should not seek to prove ourselves. Don't test the Lord and try and prove yourself. What Satan is tempting Jesus to do in this moment is to prove it. Okay, you're the son of God. You believe you're the son of God, Jesus. Then prove it. Prove it. Why don't you prove it to me? I mean, you know, if you throw yourself down, aren't the angels going to going to cover you? Aren't they going to guard you? Isn't there nothing you could do that could stop you? Aren't you invincible? Then prove it. We don't have to prove ourselves to anyone. We don't have to prove ourselves to anyone. We only have to prove ourselves to God. Right? There is no man that we have to prove ourselves to. If someone beckons you in to try and prove yourself to them and try and uh, satisfy their understanding of you, that's not where you're at. Your relationship is with your Father in heaven. And yeah, if someone doesn't understand where you are with that, it is not, you you do not have to prove that to them. You know Holy Spirit is living inside of you and he is testifying to your relationship with the Father in heaven because of Jesus Christ. You know that. So there's no reason for us to put God to the test by somehow trying to uh, prove ourselves or have him prove himself to us. There is no testing that we need to do. We have the comfort of Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done. And so we don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to seek the approval of anyone else. We simply know our relationship 
with our Father in heaven. We don't have to put him to the test. It can be very easy to do this, and it's a dangerous game. Well, God, if, if you would just do this, then I'll do this. If you do this, then I'll do this. No. <laughs> Don't test the Lord this way. He's proven himself to you in his son, Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, if you come up against a situation that's difficult to understand, ask him for help. Don't ask him for proof. He's proven to you, proven to you that he is faithful. He's proven to you by the blood of Jesus Christ that he has covered your sin, that you're perfect and righteous in the sight of the Father because of what Christ has done. And so, no, you don't have to seek proof from him when he tells you to do something. We're all going to be faced with temptations in this world and in in our lives. And um, it is important for us not to try and resolve them on our own. Try and resolve them in our own strength. What Jesus testifies to us from the law is that God has proven himself to us. He's proven himself to us faithful. He's proven himself to us righteous and holy. In every circumstance, as we uh, start to wrap up here, in every circumstance, we are to stand on the word of God. When God has told us something to do, let us be faithful and do it. And if we're hungry in the midst of it, right? I mean, there are definitely some situations that uh, we've all been walking through and, and that I'm walking through right now where I'm like, okay, Lord, I'd like to find a solution here. I'd like to manufacture something to bring some comfort and to bring some solid resolution to what is ahead. I'm going to wait. <laughs> I'm going to wait on God. I'm not going to try and comfort myself because I know what happens when I try and comfort myself in my own strength. Make a mess. God has perfect timing and he's told us exactly what we need to do in exactly the right time. And so we trust him. One step at a time. Not getting ahead of ourselves, but rather being right here, knowing what God has told us to do right now and trusting him with this day. God has told us, do not be anxious about what tomorrow brings. Rather, concern yourself with what you're supposed to be doing today. What has God told you to do today? Man is not to live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What do we do today? Ask God. Ask Him. Ask Him what you are to do today. And if you don't hear when you ask Him, like, just initially, you know, oftentimes we're like, okay, I've set aside some time for prayer, and here I go. I'm going to go pray, and God's going to speak to me. 
and you sit down and you say, Lord, I need an answer. Okay, I'm leaving. How long do we really sit with God? How long do we really wait? Because Jesus is there 40 days waiting, praying. If Jesus is sitting there 40 days before he begins this ministry that he's called to do, what are we doing? <laughs> right? We're like, God, answer me. I got, I got five minutes. You got, you got me an answer? Okay, bye. We've got to stop comforting ourselves and make time for the Lord to sit with him and listen to him and let him bring comfort to us. <clears throat> um, I think I've shared this before and you know, I'll, I'll probably share it again, but um, at certain times in my life, I've faced moments of anxiety, like panic attack type moments of anxiety, like like the world's about to end, you know? Like, I'm, I'm, here I am, and I'm going to die. The next minute, I'm going to die, you know? Anyone ever been there? Am I alone in that? No? Yeah. Okay. You've been in that spot where you think, well, the next moment's not going to come. Maybe something physiological trips that off, or maybe some sort of circumstance stress trips that off, or whatever, right? Um, and, and what I've found is this. So often we want the peace that transcends all understanding to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, right? That's what we want. And we're like, Lord, give me the peace that transcends all understanding. Okay, I'm going to work. But Jesus says in that passage, by prayer and petition, present your requests to God. Then the peace which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So I challenge you, if you're a person that has faced anxiety, has, has ha- felt hunger, right? Felt this need of some comfort from what we can have in this earth or from the Lord or whatever, Do not go to your own devices. Go to the Lord in prayer and sit there as long as it takes and speak back to him the truths that he has spoken to you. For to live is Christ and to die is gain. That has been a huge one for me as I've battled anxiety. Right? Because what... what lie am I up against? The lie is, you're about to die. (laughs) Why ever you think that, right? What is the truth for that situation? The truth is, okay, yeah, what if I die? Turns out, I'll be in heaven. That's pretty awesome. That lie has no power over me because I have an eternal hope that is bigger than that lie. And so I stand on that hope that to live is Christ and to die is gain. God will have me here as long as he wants to have me here, period. And there are things we struggle with, obviously, in that conversation that are difficult. And I'm not saying it's easy. 
but too often we seek our own comfort instead of going by prayer and petition to the Lord and just sitting there with him. I mean, if you're in a moment of anxiety, right, you know how acute that feels and how burdensome it feels and how you feel like everything's just kind of collapsing around you, the walls are caving in, these kind of things, and it's just going to end very quickly. What better moment to get on your knees and cry out to the God who made you and created you and say, God, I need you. It is that moment. There's nothing else you can do. Do not comfort yourself by what is available to you. Rather, live on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In every circumstance that you walk in, stand on the word of God from Genesis to Revelation. The whole thing. Jesus is the fulfillment of the entirety of it. The last thing in this that I want to leave with you, and we'll, we'll hit on this over and over again through this time and this series. Christ has become your righteousness. He fulfills the law on your behalf. I was thinking about this this week. I can't remember where this thought came from exactly, but it was like, it's like you stole something. He not only like made restitution, that is, he paid back what you stole, but he also paid your penalty. He paid your penalty for stealing, you know, the time you're going to be in jail for whatever you stole. He also paid the person back that you stole from. He paid it all. He has become your righteousness. Your sin, your shame, your guilt is gone in Christ. How did he do that? He did that by fulfilling the law. He did that by coming as man, God incarnate, living a perfect life, following this law to the T, and taking on your sin and your condemnation at the cross and dying for you. That little scroll in the temple is a testimony of what Jesus did for you. Because in order for the children of Israel to find their eternal dwelling place, that's what he speaks of them as at the end of Deuteronomy. He says, I've become your eternal dwelling place. It wasn't ever about the land, it was about my presence. How has he become their eternal dwelling place? Not by anything they did, but what he has done on their behalf. And the same is true today. You have not become given the, the presence of the Holy Spirit and the hope of eternal life by anything you have done, but rather by what Christ has fulfilled on your behalf. He has fulfilled the law for you. He has applied it perfectly, though tempted yet without sin. This is Jesus. And because he was tempted and without sin, he has become your righteousness. And in every situation, he can be your comfort, he will be your exaltation, and he will prove to you who you are. You have no man to look to to find your approval, only Christ. And so in every circumstance, stand on the word of God and let us continue to reflect on Jesus as the fulfillment of the law. Let us seek this, uh, this coming season to consider how Christ has fulfilled the law 
and what he's showing us and what he's teaching us to do and to follow. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for Jesus and what he's done for us. We're so thankful um, that everything we face, you're with us. Every temptation, every opportunity, every success, every failure, you are here with us. And you cast no guilt and cast no shame upon us as we stand in the power of Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us Help us not to make solutions of our own. Help us not to seek comfort in our own strength, in our own might. Help us not exalt ourselves. Rather, God, I pray that we would find our hope and our peace in Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. It's in his name we pray. Amen.